I wouldn't just say that. Hi, everybody. My name is Dylan Halpin. I am the symposium editor. Um, just wanted to give you a quick program update. Our afternoon speaker can no longer make it. He's fine. He was in a car accident on his way here. So he's fine. Everything's okay. But he can't make it for that reason. Uh, we'll have this panel go a little bit longer. We're trying to move the reception up. We'll give you some more details about that as we go along. So I'll now turn it over to this panel. Thank you. We certainly have plenty to talk about in this panel. Welcome to our post-lunch, our dessert panel, um, copyright versus copyleft. In an era of rapid technological change and shifting notions of user entitlement to enjoy creative works, how are we doing to define rights to creative expression? What is the state of play regarding boundaries of copyright and borders in the public domain? In what specific ways might we not be adequately achieving balance to optimize creation? The copyleft and users' rights sentiment seems currently as pervasive as ever. What aspects of present-day copyright law and policy need tweaking? Where are the fault lines between copyright and copyleft? Can you share your network Netflix password with all of your friends? Certainly not. No one here does that, I'm sure. Um, but can you freely take others' Instagram photos in the interest of appropriation art? Can you digitize millions of books in the interest of internet searchability? Can you distribute a digitized course pack in the interest of education? Are technological mechanisms to assist notice and take down trampling breathing space? There are certainly many issues to discuss. We'll try to get to as many of them as we can. We have a fantastic panel here to do it. Um, so allow me to introduce them. Uh, to my immediate left, we have Lauren Emerson, who's a senior associate at Baker Botts. Uh, her practice focuses on trademark, trade dress, copyright, advertising, and unfair competition. Ms. Emerson has uh, represented clients in a variety of industries in connection with disputes and litigation involving trademark, trade dress, and copyright, unfair competition, and related business torts. She received her JD right here at home at Fordham uh, Law School. Uh, next to um, Ms. Emerson, we have Joseph Farco, who's an associate at uh, Lock Ward. As a member of the firm's intellectual property law group, Mr. Farco has experience in cases involving patents, trade, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. In addition to litigating on behalf of the clients on issues involving intellectual property law, he also advises clients on protecting their intellectual property, including what types of intellectual property is best suited for the subject matter in question. Mr. Farco is a member of the New York uh, Intellectual Property Law Association and co-chair of the association's Association's Copyright Committee. Um, beside Mr. Parker, we have Mary Rassenberger, the Executive Director of the Authors Guild and the Authors Guild uh, Foundation. Prior to joining the Guild, Ms. Uh, Rassenberger practiced law for over 25 years in roles that span private practice, the government, and the corporate sector, and is, recognized, is a recognized expert in copyright and media law. Ms. Rassenberger received her JD from Harvard Law School, an MA in Philosophy from Boston College, and her BA from Barnard. And last but not least, we have James Bazile, partner at Open Tech Strategies, um, with 15 years of experience as a user, developer, advocate, and advisor in the free and open source software world. His experience in the software licensing and community building, um, and as well as nonprofit and small business startups. He focused on free software and open source production, although his working interests often take him far beyond the world of software. And he has a JD from Columbia Law School and began his career at Cravath, Swain, and more. So, 
Um, at the conclusion, you'll hopefully have a lot of questions, so save them up. And um, I'd like to first talk about um, fair use, the state of fair use today. Um, I guess my first, to start broad, are there any particular areas of fair use that seem out of balance currently? Yeah. Um, hi, thank you, Cameron. Um, so I, I do think fair use has gotten out of balance. And um, as Cameron said, I am the executive director of the Authors Guild, and we had a lawsuit against Google that went on for uh, over a decade. Um, and, but that's not where, where you know, where my um, uh, uh, where my thoughts come from completely. I mean, I, I, uh, anyway, let me let me lay out where I, I think the issues are that fair use has gotten. It's just it's really been changed by by the courts since uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Campbell v. A. Cuff Rose. In that decision, they used Judge Laval's term transformative to say that a parody, they call this parody of a song, um, Pretty Woman, the, the um, two live crew parody was um, open, fat, and hairy, ugly woman, something like that. Um, and they said that um, it, it was a transformative use. So they introduced this term into the fair use lexicon. Um, the courts since then have taken it in very ex extreme directions. and. There, there are three issues that I think um, we see in fair use law now, and I'm, I'm really hoping the Supreme Court takes another fair use case soon um, and corrects these things. The first is that the courts have turned fair use, if they find that a use is transformative, and I'll get to what that means in a minute, they have turned fair use into a one-factor test, because what happens is if, if something is transformative, then they say, it doesn't matter if it's commercial, another factor under the first factor. It doesn't matter what the nature of the work is. Under the third factor, how much is taken. If you need to take the whole thing for transformative use, it's fine. It doesn't really matter. So they don't count that. And then they look at the fourth factor, effect on the uh, market or value for the work, and they say, well, um, if it's transformative, then it's a new use, so it can't um, be a substitute in the marketplace. So it can't really hurt the market. So basically, by saying something transformative, you've already decided it's fair use. Um, and if you look at all of the transformative fair use cases, they do that. I think the, court, the Supreme Court's been very clear. The statute's very clear. It's a four-factor test. The Supreme Court in Acuff Rose did say that you can't look at the factors in isolation, but they didn't say that you have to look at all factors under the, the prism of whether something's transformative. And let me just quickly say something about uh, the meaning of transformative. So in Acuff Rose, they used that word to mean a, a, what had previously been called a productive use, basically taking a work and making a, a new work with it, creating new expression, new meaning, new message. Uh, the courts since have applied that to new, new functionality, new types of uses that are not creating new works, they're just new ways of using existing works. Um, and I think it's, that takes us in a slippery slope where we're really, really cutting into fair use uh, in a very, I mean, into copyright in a very extreme way. 
Um, the third thing, and I'll shut up, uh, that I think we're seeing um, the trend right now in the fair use cases is not looking at the entire uh, fourth factor, the, the effect on the value or potential market for the work. The Supreme Court and the other precedent was very clear that you have to look at the effect on um, the potential markets from uh, if the use were widespread and unrestricted. And if you look at the Georgia State case, if you look at in the 11th Circuit, at the uh, Google Books case in the 2nd Circuit, the courts are really just focusing on the damage from the, that particular use. They are ignoring the fact that the Supreme Court has very, very clearly said you have to look at what happens if the use is widespread. And why do we do that? Why, why is, should that be an important rule? Because when you make a fair use decision, you're creating a rule of law. Um, and it means that anybody can, you know, is going to do the same, you know, can essentially do the same thing. And I know Duval in the, in the Google decision said, well, okay, if somebody, if another entity were to do this and have a little less security, you could just sue them. Or if they were you showing a little more of the work in snippets, you can just sue them. Well, we all know you can't just go around suing everybody. It just, you know, you're not a, nobody has the resources to do that except for maybe Google. Anybody else want to weigh in on the state of um, the transformative use doctrine in particular, or um, respond to Mary's um, observation that perhaps it's um, usurping the four-factor test? Well, um, I, this is a Interesting concern, obviously. I think uh, we've all kind of seen the uh, transformative use doctrine being applied a little more broadly uh, in light of Google Books. But at the same moment, there are checks on this. Certainly, the concern with Google Books is the uh, well, what market is really the Google service being provided to? And here, individuals are trying to find select portions of a particular document, not the whole thing in total. That was, I think, the consideration that the court made there, and one of the reasons why they didn't um, consider it an outright uh, infringement. However, the TBI's case, I think, is illustrative of the fine line that's walked here. In fact, you know, somewhat some control on the transformative abuse doctrine as we're seeing it progress today. And in on one hand, the uh, repackaged content was found not to be found to be a you know fair use or transformative for the purposes of search. But to the extent that the content was then made available for users to download, then that's where the court found a problem, found a violation. So there is some, there is some line that can be crossed and which will no longer function as the transformative purpose. But certainly that we have seen a threatening of the transformative use doctrine. In another instance is the uh, Carrie Prince decision there. Um, you know, the uh, court came and said that the transformative use did not have to uh, comment on the underlying work. Now certainly there are these, uh, this may in certain instances seem as though the courts are kind of running haywire, but you do see the courts do give some concern to the factors. Um, and so, you know, in, in, from, from, our, from my point of view at least, that there is some limit on, on the transformative view, so it's not running completely astray, but certainly these factors that were enunciated in Incuff Rose um, were obviously, I think, were illustrative and nevertheless, uh, courts have paid some concern to them. Um, I think the TBI's case may be uh, indicative of that, although, you know, they don't, um, they may not, you know, refer to these factors as they were in a cup rose, but there is at least some concern there. 
And uh, then also, you know, the concern with the fourth fact that the market, you know, the um, the, uh, the market use, or and, and so that may obviously the implication there is what is it? What is the potential the potential for this? If this was to be permitted, what is the you know the downside? What could happen? And here, I think it's a little difficult for I think court to speculate. Obviously, the party, the uh, the rights holder, will be in the best position to try and propose what what calamities would result if you permitted the conduct to persist. But um, there lies in the, therein lies the problem of well, how 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 creative can one get with what a potential service can you know can be put to, you know what type of use it can be put to. Certainly, I think arrives at that use someday in the future, then it may obviously be subject to a second lawsuit. But again, as I think Mary properly said, you know, it's difficult to gather the resources, just you know, bring serial lawsuits. Um, so certainly a concern, but again, the, you know, there, there is some, uh, there is some, I guess, a little speculation involved on the facts of certain of these cases. The courts have looked at it and said, you know, they, this is where we draw a line. And I uh, tend to think that there, you know, again, while there may be an arguable Broadly, there is certain limitations, obviously, on this transformative use doctrine that we see with us today. Sure. So, where I have, uh, you know, perhaps some personal frustration with the, the trend that Mary spoke to, is that your fair use, you know, is intended to be a flexible, multi-factor test, but in practice, it's, you know, the results are not particularly predictable with any degree of certainty. Um, and you know, you've got courts across the country all treating things a little bit differently in certain circumstances. So the fact that there's now this, this buzzword that sometimes seems to, to dominate the conversation, that in itself can be incredibly broad in what it covers. It can cover both that sort of uh, meaning, message, and expression that comes from Acopros, but also the purpose. Um, you're muddying the waters quite a bit. Um, it, it even more than, than they are to begin with. So to that extent, you know, it, it, it's a little bit troubling to see in the discourse. Um, additionally, to the extent that, you know, even what the Supreme Court said kind of muddies the waters with, okay, where's the line then if, it, if what you need to do is to uh, introduce something new that changes the, the meaning, the, the message, or the expression, how, how is that, and where is that different from an unauthorized derivative work? So it just, I think there's a lot of uh, sort of muddiness around the, the transformative use factor more and more that it seems to be the, the central focus of these discussions. It's, it's uh, unsettling. Um, so one of the central problems we're facing here is that we're applying copyright law to a bunch of things that didn't used to be practically applied to. There are plenty of people who engage in an activity that implicates copyright law that a generation ago would not have done that work in public places, on social media platforms, uh, with the potential for that work to reach millions of people. And so they're just kind of doing you know, what they've always done, which is take the culture around them and make stuff out of it, right? Interact with the world around them in the way that human beings do, which is a creative way of interacting with the world. And so we're trying to apply these factors to a bunch of stuff that we never used to do. And we're expecting people to be savvy about fair use when we never would have expected them to do it a generation ago because we never would have known they were engaging in that activity. We never would have, you know, somebody took a bunch of snippets out of books 
and made some sort of index for other people to find, you know, stuff, nobody would care. It wouldn't be big enough to implicate the entire conference hall. So we're seeing this, this moment where the rules are changing because the terrain is changing. And if we don't get clarity in applying those fairness factors, we'll never get clarity for individuals. People need, on an individual level, any pretty bright line rules. Uh, at, a, at the level of people who aren't lawyers, aren't sophisticated, it's really difficult. If you, if you go to a lot of software companies, and I have a software background, so you'll get some software examples from me, you'll, you'll find rules about writing software because people Google and find snippets of software and pull it into their code all the time. Most code written today is a small bit of original code and then a bunch of stuff other people have written. Getting that all in has to be licensed. And one way people find code is by Googling their problem and then cut and pasting an answer uh, and hoping that it, that it works. There are rules in various companies about the, the permissible length of that answer. And that rule is based on somebody's opinion on how many lines you're allowed to copy before it's no longer fair use. And I've talked to a lot of companies about this. They all have different numbers. Every single company has a lawyer, intern, you know, in-house, who makes a decision about where this line is. And they share their, their opinions with other companies and the lines get socialized. And people will, will say 10 lines, 15 lines, 20 lines, whatever it is. And it's all based on nonsense. Nobody actually knows. There isn't actually a rule about the number of lines you can copy before it's a problem. You know, we've seen three lines be a problem. We've seen 50 lines not be a problem. That's not the line. But at the end of the day, the developers, the non-lawyers who have to comply with this stuff, they need a rule. They need a way to make a decision where they don't have to call legal every time they hit paste, because they hit paste 50 times a day. And so that's, that's the problem right now, is that we lack clarity, we lack real rules. And I don't know that we're ever going to get the kind of clarity that matters on an individual level. We might get the kind of clarity that matters on an institutional level, but individuals are going to be left um, just contending with a terrain in which they do not have the tools to comply. And if you take that out of the corporate context, out of the commercial context, you're talking about people who are not incurring liability for their employers, but are incurring liability for themselves. So that, that's a problem. To me, that suggests that we need to retreat from applying copyright law to these individuals who are doing sort of normal human behavior, but has suddenly become sanctionable in a way that it didn't used to be. And we shouldn't be applying rules like that. We shouldn't be forcing those people to become amateur lawyers. That's not what the law is meant to do. And we really harm everybody in society by forcing people to constantly do this calculation. Can we try to have clarity right now? I mean, can we try to, what type of, what type of rules do we need? What type of tools do we need? Do we need industry-specific guidelines? Do we need, um, can we boil down this transformative use doctrine into rules for expressive works and non-expressive works? Do we need certain rules for particular contexts? And if so, what context? What, let's try to craft some rules or, or propose some tools. Um, and I do want to respond to a couple things that James said. Um, because I, I do completely agree that we're, we're living in a world now where copyright law, for the first time, applies to everybody. It applies to all users. And fair use in particular, it's just so, I mean, you know, expert copyright lawyers can disagree about what fair use is, as, as you 
cleaned up. I mean, it's, it is, and judges can disagree. It's, it's a very murky area. So it's clear that we do need, need some guidelines. And I do want to, I was making the case for the fact that fair use has, you know, gotten over-expanded in recent years because of the transformative use doctrine and where it's transformative of being a one-factor test. But I do strongly believe that we need a robust fair use and where um, fair use is expanded to accommodate new expression, I actually am all in favor of it, in particular in the instance of user-created content. Um, so if, uh, I, I would argue strenuously that most of what kids or anybody does at home on their own computer where it's not intended to be commercial, they're just making something for fun, that to me is fair use. And I know that the PTO has been engaging in, um, in a, some, you know, research and they're doing a report on what, uh, you know, what the guidelines should be for user-generated content. But I, I would make those relatively broad. Um, so, but, but we, do, we, do need, we do need guidelines. So I would, and I, I actually spent a, a lot of my time in Washington lobbying and talking, you know, as many of you may know, uh, we've been talking about in D.C. with the House Judiciary revising parts of the copyright law. And it started out with very grand ambitions, you know, the Great New Copyright Act. Without a doubt, we need a Great New Copyright Act. Um, James, as you said, we do, we're, we're living with a law that was created really for, uh, it was passed in 76, but really it was focusing on 1950s technology. That's when people started talking about um, revising the Copyright Act. Um, and it's probably going to take us about 25 years to, <laughs> to do it this time around, too, to go to this Congress. But so, so we, we, we do need to sort of rethink the whole law, I, I believe, because the technologies and the, the players, uh, the fact that everyone's a creator, everyone's a user now, that, that has changed. But in the interim, you know, we're trying to do some fixes right now. And fair use is one of those issues that's come up is, you know, can we do something about it, creating better guidelines? And the broad consensus among the, you know, people in D.C. is, we don't want to touch fair use with a you know, template pole. Um, don't want to do anything about it statutorily. So um, I've been pushing for guidelines because I've the executive director of the Authors Guild. I represent authors, individuals, people who need to make these kind of decisions all the time. And believe it or not, when you're, when you're the author of a book and you're using um, images or poems or any kind of text of somebody else, the publisher puts the onus on you, the author, to clear the rights and to pay for it. Um, and you know, we have authors who will say, my publisher is telling me I have to clear rights for two stanzas of a poem. And I'll look at like, but that's like fair use. Like there's no question about the fact that's fair use. Well, my publisher is insisting that I clear the rights and pay the thousand dollars or whatever, which for most authors is a ton of money. So, um, you know, so we're actually thinking about creating guidelines for authors and books, but I would like to see, to answer your question, Karen, to see really good guidelines created um, with uh, representatives from all different sides, not one-sided guidelines. I know the, uh, the AU, whatever the center is there, they've, they've done some various guidelines. Um, and um, some of them have been accused of being sort of too 
user-focused one-sided, but the, the first ones they did, which are in the materials, are uh, guidelines for documentary filmmakers. And they had a diverse group helping to create those. In my last job, I used to do a lot of clearance work for documentary films, and we use those guidelines all the time, and they're very good. Why are they good? Because they, they look at it holistically. They're very focused on what kinds of issues come up for documentary films. What kind of film are you doing? Are you, when you're using a clip from another film, are you talking about that clip? Is it a criticism of it? Are you using it for a historical reference? You know, and then it takes you through a way to analyze. And it does it pretty simply. It's, I think it's like a 10, 12 page document. It's not ridiculously complex. Most documentary filmmakers can understand it pretty well, and it certainly helps their lawyers. So if we lived in the same world right now in copyright, which we don't, I would like to see a government agency run the development of guidelines for all the different types of industries and types of uses, because I think it would be really helpful not just to users, but also just to calm down copyright, the whole copyright bill, because one thing, we do, we do need to start working together better, the copy left, the copy right. Just Lauren, through your lenses as um, law firm practitioners, do you have any views on particular types of rules or tools we might be able to, to craft? So, I'm not opposed to, to, to guidelines categorically. Uh, they make me a little bit nervous against the backdrop that we have now, in that if there there are these um, you know guidelines out there that people are relying on, um, and they do so you know, to their detriment, instead of getting legal advice that is going to look at the specifics of their situation, that could be an unfortunate byproduct. Um, you know, I agree that, that, you know, it's probably not likely that we're going to change the statute on fair use, but I, you know, if there was going to be change meaningfully, I think that's probably where it would start. Um, but would be very, Curious uh, to see how the guideline uh, could work out if there was, you know, if it, it was you know, government driven. Well, Cameron, to your question uh, initially about what rules we could provide, I mean, well, I, I might advocate that while I think we spoke before about the transformative use doctrine, where it's coming from, and it's a, you know, apparent broadening, it certainly doesn't match the multi factor, you know, it may, may in some instances arguably not match the multi factor test, but it could be an attempt by the judiciary to try and attempt to give a bright line to individuals, maybe not successfully, but to limit the amount of multi factor analysis that may go into the question of, well, is this, is this, an, is this an unauthorized derivative work or is this truly transformative? And they, 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 you know, they're making attempts, albeit maybe in some instances by some considered futile. Um, from my point of view, um, where I come at this is that the copyright law in and of itself allows for a copyright to subsist with modicum of creativity. So the quid pro quo of that, of course, is you get, the, you get certain rights of uh, reproduction and performance, but you do have to consider, however, that, well, really the, really the question is when it comes to transformative or rather the fair use doctrine is, well, when what is the dividing line between your, 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 you, the holder, your derivative work, and someone else's own creativity? Now, when you fall back on it, how much creativity does one need to make it your work, or make it your own copyright work and not possession of someone else's? 
there, to me, that's always been a, a problem, I think, from just from the moorings of the law itself, because of the, arguably, I'll say, little that's required to, to allow one to have a copyright. It becomes difficult then to say, well, how much more does one need to not have your copyright and ergo not infringe? So the question is, as far as the bright lines, I think in some sense the courts may be trying to do that with trying to, you know, dwell more time on, you know, in this instance we're talking about transformative, the transformative nature of the work in question, and less on these other items that may complicate, muddy the waters, if you will. And in that sense, try to give the public, in a way, some sort of litmus test of whether, hey, am I, am I infringing, or is this something I'm, it's okay to do, and I won't fall underneath, I won't be ensnared by the copyright holder. At the same moment, the the you know certainly a guideline could possibly provide you that, but because you know I think as James put very well, the situations that will come before us are going to be so multifarious, and we'll probably I mean to. You would be speculating what possible ways people will use current technology and future technology to create content. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think the courts are trying to find and trying to provide a bright line, and that might be right now the maybe the best attempt at trying to give some sort of uh, you know some sort of clearer guidance, to overhaul the law, which I think would be a benefit. I think at the same the same problem will still exist in my mind. The fact the copyright in of itself, the fact that again, you know, the, the amount that goes into giving you the copyright, well then again that I think to me on the other side, it shouldn't take one much to maybe deviate from that to, to create a different expression. But it's in that latter concern how much of a change is really your own to which you're entitled, or it's actually just an unauthorized derivative of work. Really difficult to make bright line rules. I mean, things are changing very quickly. The details matter, and any rule we make today is going to be invalid a year from now. I mean, if you try to imagine a commercial versus non-commercial, if it's if it's not commercial, go for it. Then it, it's fair use. If you, if you imagine that as your as your bright line rule, that sounds pretty good, but in practice, impossible to follow. Right, there's, there's a set of licenses called the Creative Commons licenses. They're media licenses, kind of like the, the free and open source software licenses that allow for a certain amount of sharing of uh, media, books, music, movies, that kind of thing. And one, one version of those licenses allows copying as long as it is non-commercial, for non-commercial purposes. Nobody knows what that means. Nobody knows where the line between permissible and impermissible is because nobody knows where the line between commercial and commercialism, right? We all understand intrinsically that if I make a copy of a book and sell that book, that that is commercial activity, right? I'm exchanging goods for money. But what if I take your your song and I put it on my webpage and my webpage has ads? Maybe that's commercial, maybe it's not. What if I'm a nonprofit, so I'm not engaged in commercial activity, right? I've got this nonprofit mission. Can I use your stuff? What if I'm using it in that context and then soliciting donations near it? Nobody really knows. What if I have a Patreon page that sort of generally supports my work as a creative individual, but doesn't specifically mention this work in any connection to it. Is that commercial, right? It's part of my, my work that I get paid for in some nebulous way. The world is changing really quickly. The ways people make money is changing really quickly. And so the, the lines we draw today aren't gonna make any sense tomorrow. 
And the notion that a government agency can keep up with that change in any sort of detail, I, I've never seen government perform that function and move that quickly. I mean, the whole reason we're having this conversation is because they can't. And so I, I would really like bright line rules. I don't think we're ever going to get them. I don't think the system can give them to us. I don't think there's any hope of having them detailed or updated. And really, the only possible workable solution is just a, a full-on retreat of copyright law. Anyone have any positive comments? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a, there's a, there, this is a positive comment, right? Destroy copyright law, and we are all free. <laughs> we can go home. <laughs> Someone has to have an opinion on that. <laughs> I don't think we need to necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is a hard problem. I think the reason we have this multi-factor test that, that, that nobody quite loves is, you know, is because it's flexible and in theory it can, can you know, sustain over time and, and grow with us. And it, you know, I, I don't think it's perfect. Um, I think we could probably do better. I do not have a perfect answer today. My, you know, my thinking, and I don't know that, that Mary's going to like this very much, um, but you know, one of the things that keeps jumping out at me, particularly with all these discussions of transformativeness, is that you know, there really are sort of these two buckets, right? We've got transformative as to purpose, which a lot of the times is uh, content neutral. It's, it's content agnostic. It, it's um, the, the use that's in question is not doing anything that has to do with the expressive value of the copyrighted work. So, you know, obviously you've got the Google Books type examples, which may not be the perfect one, um, but certainly there was the, the, a case involving uh, papers that were put into a database so you could check for plagiarism, things like that, right? The, the use that's being made has nothing to do with the expressive content of any of those papers. Um, is that a different animal, and do we perhaps want to treat that type of use differently than uses that are, you know, where the, the use in question is, uh, you know, playing on and operating on the underlying expressive value of the first work. And I, you know, I think there may be something there that would make sense. I mean, could you have a framework where, um, for the sort of content neutral um, works, the, the, the fair use test is, okay, is it uh, content neutral? It fits one of the, the purposes in the preamble of 107. Great. If so, then it's presumptively fair as long as it only takes as much as it needs to to accomplish that purpose, which I agree in practice could be a little fuzzy, uh, and, and doesn't harm the, the author of work one or harm them unduly. Um, I think you perhaps have a, a different uh, calculation on the uh, the, the content, you know, the side where the, the content matters, um, which is sort of a, it's a different, you know, sort of thinking than, okay, that whatever you do in, in your own home and playing with stuff is fine. So, it, again, don't have a, an answer, but I think there are things that we could think about how realistic it is for the, the Congress to take this up and make it work, separate question. Um, but I, I I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not ready to give up on copyright entirely. Mary, thoughts on throwing out copyright? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I would not throw out copyright. And, and I, I think the reason 
people like James can even suggest that is because we're spoiled. We're spoiled by how, how well copyright has worked. And so we take it for granted. Um, you know, I, I, I now work with authors. I've spent much of my career working with creative people. I know how copyright works on a day-to-day on a -day basis in terms of allowing people to create works and make money from it and therefore be professional creators. I feel very strongly, and you know, I guess you could take issue with this, but personally I feel very strongly that in a civilized democracy, we need creators. We need a professional class of creators. We need literature. We need the arts. And if you can't, you know, study an art with the understanding that you're going to be able to, you know, actually support yourself in that art and then go on and do it professionally, you're just, you're, you're not going to do it. There are very few people who go into music, writing professionally who think they're going to get rich. They know. I have a son who's a musician, a daughter who's an artist. Neither of them thinks they're going to go on and do that artist profession because I think that they're, you know, learning other things because it's a very, those are very, very hard professions to even make a substance living in. The Authors Guild, we did a, a, a survey about a year and a half ago and found that the mean author's income now, full-time authors, not part-time, full-time is 17500 You know, we're talking people not making much money, but they can do it. They make it work. If you don't have copyright, the whole system falls apart. The only way you can have professional people, you know, devoting their lives to their art in a way that produces great art is if you've got patrons or the government sponsoring them. Copyright was created so that we didn't have to rely on a patronage system. We don't want the government writing our textbooks. I mean, really. And, and when you, you look at what some people in the copy left are saying right now about textbooks, they're suggesting that everything things should be government funded and paid for by the and if they're paid for by the government, then then they should be um, they should be public domain. Which if something's paid for the government, public domain, fine. But honestly, we do not want the government paying for our arts. You know, we the copyright allows allows individuals in a free market economy to express themselves freely. I mean, the Supreme Court has said this multiple times in different ways. It is the engine of free expression. And the only reason we're even having this conversation, I think, is because we've taken it for granted. Perhaps in Texas, they, the government writes the textbooks. But um, uh, James, I'd like, I'd like for you to jump in, but if you could, and I probably have a lot to say, well, based on the comments, but if you could, I'd like to hear, um, kind of old wine and new bottles with the software culture, okay, the coding culture of software. And um, one thing Mary mentioned is that, that um, creators might not create without being compensated for it. But in the coding culture, there's this, you would have a lot of insight on coding, creating, sharing, this um, subculture of doing that without the expectation of being compensated for it and how that might dovetail or provide some old wine in your bottles to be used in some other aspect of copyright. 
It's been a long time since I've been in a law school, which means it's been a long time since I've heard this old wine and new bottles uh, phrase. I had to cast it back. It's a slippery slope when you use it. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I wasn't actually trying to start the burn down copyright conversation. I was being uh, exaggerating for effect, but I'm happy to have it because it's, it's, it's an interesting discussion. You know, the question of how creators get compensated in the new economy is, is an open question. It's a changing question. Right? We've done it with copyright for a number of years. And Mary's right. Copyright law works pretty well, but mostly, most of us ignore it. And now that we all have to think about it, man, it's terrible. And so, you know, the, will people create? I don't know. They created for many, many years before we even had a thing called copyright law. We had professional people stuff. And yeah, there was there was a, a patronage system, government systems in place because that's what was available at the time. Now we have a new thing available. Right? We have a new we 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 have a new thing available, which is the ability for people to take their works directly to the people and say, hey, I'm doing an interesting thing. Support my stream of creativity. And there are a lot of people who are making a living as creative producers doing this kind of thing. And maybe it's not quite as many as are making it under the old system. But things are changing very quickly, and we don't know what the next set of things are going to be. And if we create rules that stamp out the next set of things and destroy entire fields of creative expression, we'll never find out. We have new mechanisms. We can start appreciating them, we can start using them, and the, the rationale for copyright law that nobody will create if they're not compensated under the copyright regime is flat out false, because there are plenty of people doing it differently right now, and that number is growing very, very quickly. Right? Everyone is putting together multiple streams of income in new ways that they weren't before. That's what the new economy is all about. That's what the gig economy is all about. That transformation affects every bit of society, including creative producers, maybe especially creative producers, because they're all freelancers now. And the notion that we will not have creative expression if we're not paying people is just so completely falsified by not only history, but by the vast numbers of people today creating in ways that are not directly compensated and creating in fields that are not lucky enough to be compensated by this stream of mainstream media money. You know, it doesn't make sense that people are not going to create. People have all sorts of endeavors that they pour themselves into, creative and not, that are not directly compensated. And they make applications of them and they devote serious amounts of time, energy, and money to them, and they become experts and professional level producers of that stuff. So the notion that we'll have some sort of death of the arts without copyright law is just, that's a fantasy that is not based at all in the world that we live in. Yeah, and then we'll, we'll shift this whole thing to I mean, obviously, I, I just completely disagree with that, because you know, you're talking very abstractly and broadly, and yes, we have this wonderful gig economy, and it all sounds so great, and whatever. yeah, everybody's a freelancer. Authors have always been freelancers, right? The difference is, and, and I think you're unaware of how much copyright even allows individuals to reach out. Uh, Once I'm, anybody, well. I'm perfectly well aware of the yeah. activity in the field. Thank but but uh, what you can't do without copyright law, unless you're being supported by some institution, some rich person, or the government, is have a career in an art without copyright. Because you can't, and, and that limits free expression. I mean, that's my point. 
is when you're in a university setting, what you're doing is influenced by that university setting. Universities produce a lot of great books. They don't tend to be art, though, right? When you're, you know, when you've got a rich person sponsoring something, you might, and there's, there's a lot of great art produced in, you know, in the Renaissance that was funded by rich people who didn't uh, influence the art that much. But you have to do something that they're going to like, right? The point that about having copyright which allows people to make money if there are willing buyers is a really it's it's a, it's a democratic principle I mean it it, it allows anybody to express them but it means anybody can express themselves now I also don't think it's one or the other right I think that yeah there are ways for people to make money like Musicians can go out and perform. They hate it, you know. And they hate it when people tell them, "I oh, don't worry about making money from sound recording. Just go perform." When you're 70 years old and you have to go out on the road again, it sucks really bad. But songwriters—they don't have that option. They're—they're they're losing their shirts. There are, I think, like there's one tenth the number of people making a living doing songwriting now. There are much fewer people making a living to write books. Less music as a result. I would well. Let's not get into that I mean, debate. I, but I, don't, I don't feel. Any I, I, I would. I'm talking. I'm. You might talk about. How is society worse off? We haven't seen the end of copyright. You're talking about let's dumb copyright. I'm saying when we do, you will see an, an impact. Now, I mean, individuals. Can can I just finish my thought? Like um, yeah. Can I finish my thought? So individuals can. I I think. Copy left is really has a thing against the 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 um, you know the, the industries, and I will say I I could care less if a particular industry dies as long as there are creators that have people supporting them. So in publishing, there is a way for in, there's a huge new business now for self-publishing, um, and that's true in, in other fields too. So there are ways to get rid of the middleman. But they still rely on copyright. This was awesome, by the way. Very heated, but it's a healthy debate, right? It's, it's good to be had, and especially at a public forum like this. And, you know, around the dinner table as well. Okay, so let's shift to a related um, but more targeted topic, um, the state of safe harbors and our um, notice and takedown systems, uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And, and if you would, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the use of automated tools in that process. The, the place for automated tools, algorithms within a notice and takedown regime. So any anybody want to any observations on the state of our notice and takedown systems? Sure. Um, so uh, there are five twelve notice and takedown provisions. It is not a perfect system. There are there are issues and there are flaws, and you'll hear criticisms that uh, you know from, from all sides. You know, on, on the one hand, people say that you know, the process is rampantly abused. It's used to stifle uh, competitive, com competitive discourse. It's used to, com to stifle political discourse. And, and all of that is bad. On the flip side, you, you hear it doesn't go far enough. The content creators are uh, playing whack-a-mole. They are submitting the same notices to the same entities over and over again on the same works. And it's incredibly onerous. It, it's just too much. 
And while, you know, from my standpoint, all, you know, all of that is, is valid to some extent, um, I, I get a little bit defensive about 512 because I think there's a lot of it, uh, a lot about it that's good. Um, having the, the system in place has facilitated uh, the growth of a lot of internet businesses that probably couldn't have operated otherwise. One, there's a, a, not as much litigation in this area as I think we would have seen had we not gone this route with the safe harbor. Um, and, and from my standpoint, just working with clients, it's a fantastic, potent, reliable, uh, quick relief. Um, and oftentimes in circumstances where you have no idea who's posting the infringing content um, and really would have no other meaningful way about getting the content down. Um, so I'll leave it there. Any other thoughts? I could, I could say that it's, uh, I think it's definitely it's working. It's not perfect and not really anything really is. Um, certainly with the automated tools, the, uh, at one time it definitely seemed like a really cool business idea, but um, now in light of the Lens case, um, which some of you may be aware, obviously you have to make sure the copyright holder um, considers the fair use implications of the material before you know, seeking a notice to take it down. Um, you know, another thing we, Lauren and I have come across as uh, co-chairs of the Copyright Committee, the NYFLA, is you know, when, when, when the takedown is actually really a trademark takedown, not a copyright takedown, as you know, the DMCA does not apply. The trademark takedown, and uh, one I would say, if you have time, the Smith v. Summit Entertainment case out of Northern District of Ohio. There, um, a copyright holder, well, sought to use the 512 uh, takedown notice when they understood that it was really a trademark concern, not really much a copyright. And you know, the plaintiff, the the, um, the poster, then you know filed a complaint for a wrongful assertion of a copyright copyright takedown notice, and the, the that that claim was not denied. So you know the copyright holder had you know well, and obviously there will be some some case and I haven't followed it since but that, that's a problem if you using automated tools without going through that analysis by lens and furthermore not taking the time to really look at the viability of the requested takedown could could subject you to some some uh, some liability so um, certainly it's not perfect and but I think it is working. It's, it does. It can be used, and there's as as usual, we rely on the courts to provide some sort of grounding for uh, for companies that would, you know, try to automate this. And I think obviously it's going to be a little more. Someone has to put a little more time and effort into it. But so on the automated tools front, um, may not be a sustainable business. But then again, you can always design a new algorithm and maybe even try to get copyright on it to uh, make sure that you police your uh, rights properly. We can't the algorithms perhaps assist with the second factor, you know, the nature of the work, or maybe the third factor, the amount used, right? But how how are the tools supposed to evaluate all four factors? I think it's just a fascinating. I think it's industry wants to use them for efficiency, needs to use them in, in certain cases as a tool, but it's it's kind of an interesting um, aspect to consider how the algorithms might be designed to evaluate all four of the factors. Cameron, what I would say would be interesting, since you know, I have an engineering background, but to, to design the code to, to do that in the first, and now that you're talking about content, we've, we're all, I think, maybe assuming about just literary, maybe pictorial content, but if you talk about songs, you know, you know the, the pre-1972 sound recordings are not subject to the, uh, um, DM, the DMCA, I don't think, applies. So you have the, there's no safe harbor, 
So then now you have to have a, some sort of code to discriminate um, what type of sound recordings are are or on the website if you want to take that down. It, it, I don't know. I mean, obviously, people creative enough to do that. Mary James. Um, well, I, I I think in a number of industries, the, the big copyright holders have to use um, automated um, takedowns because the, it's how you find you find the um, infringing content. But often they have human eyes reviewing because of the lens issue. So, uh, and that's what you see in publishing actually. Um, the uh, services who help identify and send notice, identify infringing um, content and send notices do tell you that they, they, they find it through automated tools and then they have human eyes looking at it. So, obviously human eyes should be the minimum bar at some point because an algorithm cannot tell fair use. Expert practitioners can't tell fair use, so we're not going to we're not going to get there anytime soon. But my big problem with notice and takedown as a structure is what it does to the industry. You know, we, we've we've taken a bunch of activity, as we said before, that didn't used to get copyright scrutiny, and now we've scaled it up via the internet and all these services to the point where people are doing all this expressive activity, and because human eyes on things doesn't scale that well. We have these automated tools to try to help us figure out where things are. When we find things through these incredibly imperfect methods, we then shift all of the burden of dealing with it to the, the YouTubes of the world, right? And so we suddenly, we, we are pressing these companies into service as copyright enforcers and shifting all this liability to them. And that's, that strikes me as problematic because then they have to scale up, right, to, to go investigate it. And it turns out we're, we're wasting an awful lot of time to decide whether children can lip sync to Katy Perry. I mean, that's, that's a lot of machinery that we're paying cost in society for. And that, that doesn't strike me as, as useful. And so what happens is the, the YouTubes of the world then decide to not put as much effort into looking at all these videos, right? They, they start doing automated work of their own to try to figure out how to respond to it. And you start carving out these places where fair use stops existing in the way that it used to, used to exist. And so that, that's, that's a problem. And I'm not sure what the, the solution is, but notice and takedown has that effect, and we need to start evolving structures as an industry that counteracts that effect. I don't know that there's a, a legal solution anywhere in there, except maybe, you know, scrap notice and takedown. But I don't know what I would replace it with. So, um, I do think notice and takedown is a highly imperfect solution, and I'm sure if we were to start over, we could come up with a much, much better solution. Um, I think 512, actually, as it was drafted, you know, wasn't bad, but I think the courts have, you know, they've just ignored things like red flags, knowledge that would incentivize um, more cooperation and solutions like filtering. The filtering has the same problem that it's it can be imperfect, right? And you still need human eye review. Um, but the notice and takedown system takes so much. It's just it's so inefficient. The big ISPs spend so much. They have so many employees working on it, and so do the big copyright holders. Um, and the big copyright holders do have agreements with the big ISPs by and large. Um, I know Google has a trusted notice sender program. Um, the problem is if you're an individual author, creator, you can't get into it. You can't be trusted. So 
we're working on solutions uh, for that. And I understand Google can't have every single individual creator be trusted. And you know, the whole idea is that you know that it's a valid notice sender. Um, but so, you know, we're looking at ways to sort of allow creators collectively to go through some other entity to do this. But, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, one thing that I keep coming back thinking about is something that when I was in law school, like <laughs> 100 years ago, Professor Dershowitz was my criminal law professor. And there's not much I remember from law school, but I do remember him you know, talking about how many, how many false positives are you willing to have in the criminal justice system? How many people, you know, where do you, how do you make, where you draw the rules? You know there are going to be some people who are innocent being convicted or arrested or whatever. Um, so how much do you care about putting away the criminals, the real criminals, and allow for, you know, there might be some, um, uh, you know, having some innocent people being um, also affected. And I think most people feel like we should create rules that prevent most, you know, any innocent people from being put in jail, or, you know, to the extent possible. But it's, it's, an, it's an interesting way of looking at it, and I think that's true here, too. So, James said that, that, that 512 puts a lot of burden and liability on the ISPs. Actually, it takes the liability off of the ISPs. That was the whole purpose of 512. That if not for 512, ISPs would actually be secondarily liable if their users were infringing and they were benefiting from it financially and they could terminate those users or if they were seen to be materially contributing to it, which in most cases they would be. So 512 is a really important tool um, that has allowed, I think, the growth of the internet that we see today. Um, the problem is that it's been interpreted in a way that very much um, favors the ISPs over uh, stamping out copyright uh, infringement, right? So I think what we're saying is we, we've made that decision along the continuum that we will, we're not willing to accept any false positives or as few as possible, right? And I'm not saying, making a judgment about that. I just think we need to be clear about what we're saying is that we're okay allowing a lot of infringement as long as stuff that isn't infringing isn't taken down. So we just, we need to be conscious of that. James, you want to quickly respond to that? Yeah, so, you know, the filtering that, that gets proposed, those filtering algorithms are the same algorithms that we're using to find the bad stuff in the first place. And they are just as imperfect as that other stuff. So moving the filter, moving those algorithms down the chain does us absolutely no good at all. Filtering is not a solution that will ever produce anything of value that we don't already have in the system. Okay, so let's talk next about copyrightability um, and the requirements for copyrightability. Do you perceive any particular areas that, um, that need tightening or loosening? Um, perhaps software, um, boundaries with patents with software, usefulness, particular um, aspects of things that perhaps could qualify under the current copyrightability requirements? Thoughts on that topic? 
Rod, and you know, I deal with this a lot. So um, from the, uh, it is always the concern is, well, the software, the code intrinsically has this ability when operated upon to do some sort of useful or so obviously that's going to be outside the confines of copyright. But I, I think, again, and Lauren had mentioned it, you're really looking at the expression. I mean, it's pretty basic. So, you know, the, the code, the expression from the code itself, how the how its lines or how it's written out, that's really what you're really targeting in the copyright sense. And I, I advise clients when you, uh, for the patents that I file for them, also the copyright code that goes with it, you do some, you do a filing of some section of the code or all of it, and then you obviously want to uh, continually file your updates um, for the code with the office um, as the need exists. And you know, uh, for, for the problems that may exist with the Boundary between the two. I think the merger doctrine has provided, you know, again the, the protection against that. Uh, we saw that the Oracle v. Google case, the APIs, and the application merger doctrine. And um, I, I would say what's interesting, obviously, with the change in the patent law, is that what's considered patentable is based on when you know, the stuff in the document is filed. But copyrightability is at the, the time of creation. So you could have a code, a software algorithm that may not be perfected or may not even be working, but yet copyright will subsist in the document but not patentability. So from I guess a very you know very uh, theoretical um, point of view, um, they actually can coexist um, and they do. And uh, I don't believe software today has done anything that has caused it to sort of tip over the line. And the, and the law exists to protect against any sort of, you know, any sort of line crossing that people may argue may exist. Um, as they, again, the Oracle Google case about merger. Um, that's my standpoint, my experience. Should we move on to another topic? Um, I'll jump in. Um, I, I, in the past, spent a lot of time litigating software cases and. Um, oversaw the, the Copyright Office's new compendium of, of practices. And this is, uh, software is an area where I think the rules really need to be tightened for copyrightability. There's a lot that gets registered uh, that, in my view, shouldn't be copyrightable because we don't have registration specialists or examiners that are programmers, so they don't know how to read code. So literally, they'll look and see if there are enough, you know, characters on the page, and they'll say, oh, there are, you know, there's two lines of code, that's copyrightable, or even a line. And, and I, uh, so whereas in music, they do have experts. They have experts who will say, that's a common chord progression, not copyrightable. That's a melody that's very common, not copyrightable. We need to be doing this in software too. We need people who can say, you know, that is a common tool. That's a really common way of, 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 of writing that or framing that. That's a, that's a module that we see. That's obvious. Either, or that's really just an idea. Um, because in my experience, a lot, including some of the things that have been protected in the 1201 hearings, really are not, should not even rise to the level of de minimis originality. Um, and I, I guess I would even go further and suggest, although maybe this is a little radical, but that we think about having a sui generis system for software. Software doesn't need like plus 70, right? Um, it's, I mean, who's gonna be using a piece of code uh, in, in 70 years, much less like plus 70? So, 
You know, I think that's an area that we really need to be looking at very seriously. And if you've ever litigated software cases, in part because you don't have to deposit the whole thing, oh my God, figuring out what got into the code when, you know, uh, in what version is really, really uh, an arduous task. Okay, let's um, open it up for questions now, if you guys have some, and then we'll quickly try to tie this together and create some interconnections and close on coherent. Well, I, the microphone's coming around, but um, while Dylan's slowly walking over there. Um, if you could state your name and, and your affiliation. Sure, uh, Kathy Walter, I'm a 3L here at Fordham. I'm curious about uh, the conversation that you were having over here, and I think it points to the idea that a lot of people in the new service economy are starting off, they're sort of small business owners. Um, and we talked a bit about how it's hard to protect your content with Google, for instance. Um, we talked a bit about if you want to protect your software code, you kind of have to do a little bit of copyright, a little bit of patent. That gets very expensive very quickly. So in terms of being able to protect one's property or one's intellectual property in this new economy that we're seeing, I wonder if you don't have some thoughts in terms of actual um, uh, payability or, or cost of, of doing that business and still being able to protect yourselves, particularly since these smaller groups are not able to make as much as an author might have made 50 years ago writing a book. So I mean, first I would say that, that we have existing mechanisms that try to provide these kinds of resources to people in that position. The Authors Guild is one such mechanism. Uh, so that's, that's one answer. The, the other answer is don't protect it. Right? If you are a person working in an area where protecting your work under copyright law is going to be very expensive, you could decide that it is not worth the expense, and you take a different route. And a lot of people are doing that. And so there, there are a lot of people who are not protecting their work as much as the law will allow them to, or even at all. Right? They are spreading their work widely, trying to build a reputation, an audience, and a fan base, and then figuring out, once they have that audience, how to monetize it. So, you know, the, 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 I think the real weakness in sort of the, the coming shift is that we're, we're asking creative professionals to be more like small businesses than they have been in the past. Right? The big advantage of copyright law, in my mind, is that it really allows a creative professional to take their copyright, hand it to some business people, and say, you figure out the money portion of this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do nothing but create. And that's, that's an oversimplification, right? That all the creatives are, are also business people already. But I think in the coming shift, at least there's gonna be a period where we're gonna we're going to be putting some more pressure on, on the creative world to be more creative about their business, to think more about their business than perhaps we have in the past. And I, I'm erasing all the people who have you know, spent decades having to be creative about their business in the creative world. But I think we're, we're tilting a little bit more in that direction. And so that, that's a cost, right? That's going to be a thing that we have to contend with. Um, I think we're going to end up in a better place where the, the need for copyright protection in order to make a living will be lower, and so the need to pay for these services will be lower. And the larger scale entities that can afford the services 
will get those benefits and those protections, and they'll enjoy them, and it'll work for them. But there will be a, a level of activity below which copyright just gets ignored in a lot of cases, which which has always been true. But I think it should be more true. Um, I could just add, add to that. I actually I really agree with James on the point that uh, the, the world is changing, and um, and creators of all stripes have to figure out how to survive in it. And one of the things that the Authors Guild we're spending a lot of time working on is teaching authors to be entrepreneurs. We tell them, you're a small business. You've got to think like a small business. Even if you're being published by a traditional publisher, they're not doing, they're not doing the same marketing they used to. Um, they're not even doing the same editing they used to. So you either have to do it yourself or you have to um, hire people to do it. So I, I think there is one thing I just want to clarify is that a lot of real cre creative people, and I think, you know, you may, when you're thinking of creators, think of people who blog or out there writing. I'm thinking of real, you know, artists, people who are real literary, you know, uh, types writing novels. A lot of those people really don't, they're not business people. So what we tell them is that's fine, but then you've got to, You've got to partner with others, or you've got to, or you've got to hire people who can help you if you want to only devote yourself to the craft. Um, and we do have problems with some of our, you know, old, older members. They just bristle at the thought, and we're like, well, you know, you can you can move along with this world, or you can get left behind. You know, I mean, that's really the choice now. So we give social media training. You know, you really the way to sell a book now is to be is to be out there in the market. I, I they still rely on copyright though, and and I have, you know, there are very very few professional authors who, who aren't academics who are just like, yeah, I'm really happy when people copy my book and sell it, and you know make money on it and don't attribute it to me. Now they kept really upset. I was at a, at, a, at a book fair where this woman who's a long-time member came up and told me that somebody who she'd written a book for, you know, written not for profit, they'd just taken it and taken her name off of it and done a new edition, and she spent a long time, she devoted 10 years to writing that, and she was sobbing, sobbing. I, I see this a lot, you know? And, um, and again, these are people who don't make very much money to begin with, so. Also on to everything she said about entrepreneurship, and by the way, that also applies to law students. Lauren, you want to jump in, and then we'll get another question from the audience. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think all of what's being said is true, but there, there are things that small businesses can do. I mean, particularly in copyright, you know, you if you are creating something and it. <coughs> is entitled to copyright protection as soon as it's fixed in a tangible media of expression, you have the copyright in it. And copyright registration, while not, uh, you know, the copyright office website is not the world's most user-friendly, it's also not the world's most expensive. It's not the same, uh, there's not the same barrier to entry that you have with patent, which is truly expensive, I think, no matter how you cut it. Um, so there are things to explore that way, and trademark rights apply that way. You get trademark rights through using a mark in commerce. You don't have to register. Maybe a good idea, may not, maybe may not be. Um, but you, unless you expressly reject your copyright, you've got it. Um, one does, but you could. 
But if you don't, that is a tool that you have at your disposal. And I think as a, a, a whether you are a you know a, a business business or a in the business of being creative, you, you kind of owe it to yourself to explore the options and what's available to you and come up with something uh, a plan that does work and does fit your budget to the best that you can. I think there are options out there. You have another really good question from the audience. <laughs> no, I'm I was wondering, uh, basically, the copyright case Petrella, if anybody on the panel had a certain opinion on basically getting rid of latches with uh, copyright damages, that defense. cases that just, you know, even if they're, they're continuing infringements should be, they're just too old, right? I'd say uh, from uh, some of my patent work, I'm hoping that the Supreme Court does the same thing with the um, patent law as well with respect to the latches following the trial. I'm not sure the statutes are different between the, uh, in the copyright and the patent context, but I thought the decision was well. I think it, um, yeah, of course, it's a concern with people coming out of the woodwork to go sue for copyrights. Uh, that's certainly a, that certainly could be a percent problem, but I don't think that the decision was, was well-reasoned. Uh, it was not reason to disagree with it. Question here? Yeah. Um, I guess I, I wanted to know what you thought about how, um, you know, name and affiliation. Oh, sorry. Uh, my name is James Locano. I'm a Terrell student. So we recently learned in our IP class about how sort of the um, Mickey Mouse Steve really will be sort of almost single-handedly pushed forward copyright to such a long life, uh, a lifetime. Um, and I was curious what you thought about how that, you know, 70 years past the life of the artist, um, why you think it they might have made that sort of blanket thing for so many art forms, or um, if they're, you know, sort of don't want to do the legwork of seeing how much copyright protection is needed on a case-by-case -case basis or a situation-by-situation. -situation. In terms of our, uh, in our copyright term, is it, is it currently um, achieving progress in science and the useful arts? Just like to say one thing, I, it's a common misconception that Steamboat Willie was the impetus behind it. Winnie the Pooh was going to run out in I think, 2006. It was more pressing, I think. I think well, whatever Disney's work, you know, reasons were for contributing to that legislation, Winnie the Pooh was going to actually run out ahead of time. Okay, <laughs> also trying to conform our laws with the international norms, which you moved to like plus 70. But um, I, I think it's one of the worst things we did in this country was extend the terms. Honestly, I mean, I know, I, I don't know any creators who care about the difference of life plus 70 versus life plus 50. I, you know, I really don't. I think the theory was you want to go down to the grandchildren, um, but we're not big on inheritance in this country anyway, right? So. Um, 
I, I don't know. I, I, I wish we could sort of turn back the table on that. Now, of course, we put it in every bilateral and multilateral trade agreement we have, so it's going to be very hard to go back on. But it's given copyright a bad, a bad name, and it's, it's unnecessary. And I think you suggested that maybe there could be different terms for different types of works. I actually think that that's not a bad idea in other countries they do do that. Any particular context? Software, perhaps? Well, software, photographs. Um, a lot of countries don't give full terms to photographs. Yeah, well, fashion, if we thought of that fashion bill passed. Um, yeah, but, you know, the, the only reason why plus 70 um, makes sense to anyone, it's, you know, it's protecting the interests of, of big corporations. But, you know. I don't, I don't think you're really helping out the individual creators there. Let's get one question from this side, since I'm neglecting. Hi, Joey, um, a 4L with the journal. Um, we talked a little bit, and you touched on this a little bit before, but it's been said a couple times um, that the whole world at this point seems to be, everyone seems to be a copyright owner. So my question is, how is that influencing how we think about the justification for copyright law in general? There's the incentive argument, there's the sweat of the brow, which has kind of been disposed of, um, and particularly in light of the earlier panel with people taking pictures of maybe newsworthy events, um, you know, I think maybe there's not a lot of incentive argument there because they're going to do that anyways. Um, so. How is the fact that everybody is now a copyright owner changing how we think about the underlying justification for copyright law in general? Well, I, 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 may, um, I actually have a opinion that's between Mary and James, in fact, on this. I mean, I do believe today, at least with some of the clients I deal with, copyright's the last thing on their mind. They could care a little, especially a lot of programmers. They don't really see it. Some of them, some of them feel actually it's like kind of pejorative to try and get a copyright in your code. You want it to be freely available. I mean, in fact, some of the, I don't ask, but some of their stuff may come from other sources. Uh, I do eventually have to ask, but I mean, some, at, the, at the first instance, you know, you do learn though. It, you know, it's a, kind of, it's a community where there's, there is a shared there's discourse, a shared um, group. But, you know, what happens is, you know, with Warren or me, you get, you get a phone call and you say, hey, someone just ripped me off or, you know, someone put my code into their, you know, their operating system and now uh, they're running, you know, rampant infringement against me. Then all of a sudden copyright becomes very useful. It becomes, and, then, and then all the justifications and incentives become full clear. But I think what you have right now is you do have a, a world of people creating with or without copyright, irrespective of its existence. But the fact of the matter is the law does exist. The law is there in place to, you know, to basically catch you when you feel like you've been wronged. And that's, so the justification maybe at the time of creation is not recognized, but I do think these, the reason, the incentives it provides are, I think they're core, intrinsic to any creator, as I think Mary was describing, anybody who takes what you created and your ingenuity and your abilities to help to manifest in the public, you know, the public uh, discourse of ideas and expressions, Someone else takes that and claims it as their own, then that's where the copyright law steps in. But it doesn't. It's not. It's not on people's minds when they're creating them. Again, I don't think you can talk about this so much in the abstract because I think it, it depends. Um, I, I agree. That most software uh, programmers don't. They're not thinking about copyright. Um, but 
there are, and, and when you take text, when you're writing text, you may be writing, uh, you may be thinking about copyright or you may not be, right? You may be writing just to communicate or you're writing because you love to write and you want people to read it. Um, or you may be writing because this is what you want to do with your life and you have an MFA and you need to support yourself. I mean, I'll, I'll give an example of, I, I have a cousin who's an artist and she does these amazing collages where she cuts out, you know, literally magazines, but she creates uh, lifelike images doing it. And she's trying to supplement her income and she was teaching, doing some kind of teaching, and she came up with this thing where it's sort of like, she, she provides an outline, you know, for what something should look like and then you find the magazine pieces and fill it in, and then you can create really great artwork with it. Um, so for her, if somebody else could take her designs and just sell what she's done, um, and you know, uh, basically just you know steal her work, and they could compete with her taking her work. If people were allowed to do that, she wouldn't go into that business. It just, she couldn't invest in it, right? Um, because, of course, as soon as it became successful, somebody else would just rip it off and, and, um, and take her work and compete with it. So I think it, I think it completely depends. So I, my answer to that would be it, the, the, the world has changed drastically since copyright was sort of born, right? And the, what it was put in place to incentivize was distribution. Distribution, printing things, when you had to do it letter by letter by letter. Extremely expensive, extremely onerous. Distribution, incredibly expensive, very, very difficult. And nobody was going to invest in those technologies unless they had some sort of monopoly. And so copyright kind of solved that problem. That's not the world we live in. You can, can create and disseminate content at, at the click of a button. Everybody can do it. You do it all the time. But the fact that, that, that all of that has changed doesn't undermine the value that copyright has in society. And I think Mary spoke to that perfectly. Do I have uh, another question? I'm Sophia Marshkowski, LLM student and also on the journal. Um, so after being a playwright for two decades, both in this country and in my own, Russia, uh, I was under contract uh, for La Mama Experimental Theater for 10 years and I worked there very well with Ellen Stewart and there was nothing really required of me. I've been writing ever since I was a child and I write plays. Um, and we may have a different kind of uh, way of, of setting copyrights, certainly we go through the Dramatist Guild of America and that's how we're basically protected. Um, and then also we can go to Writers Guild East or West, depends on where you are. But I never, I mean, my, my works always stem from inspiration and never from copyright, so I never really thought about being protected. And I run a couple of women's organizations for women playwrights, and we all don't really think about copyright too much, except that someone would maybe like Samuel French buy our work, and then people would read it. What happened recently is that uh, I work both at one theater in Moscow and one theater in South Korea, and uh, on a recent trip, I see one of my plays being performed um, in, in, in the former Soviet Union, the place where I was born, technically. There's nothing I can do, nothing the Dramatist Guild could have done for me. 
nothing that anyone really advised me to do. It was basically, you know, I had a play that was, uh, yes, technically copyrighted only with the Dramatist Guild and only with Writers Guild, and they reached out a couple of times uh, to the theater in Moscow, and nothing happened. And in fact, they basically told them to piss off. So <laughs> I'm just wondering if you have any kind of advice for someone like me that works on the international front. Um, obviously, being a law student, hopefully I can take care of these things <coughs> as well, but right now, I'm kind of at a loss. So the panel can't give formal legal advice? No, no, no formal legal, but just something something that would uh, kind of tell me what do you think happened there? Well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's an enforcement issue, right? I mean, you, you have a copyright in your play in, in Russia by virtue of, um, well, you're Russian, but also by virtue of the treaties. But enforcement is really expensive and really hard, particularly in foreign countries. And, um, you know, even, even in the case of something, I can't tell you how many time in, times in my career I've had to tell um, small businesses or individuals, you have a slam dunk infringement case here. It's infringement. But even to getting to a summary judgment, even the very quickest case that we could bring is going to cost, you know, like $150,000. So the way you try to deal with it is through cease and desist letters. You know, you, you say you're going to bring a claim. You know, you do what you can to get the other party to listen. And, and if they're honest people, usually will be like, oh, whoops, we didn't realize, you know, whatever happened and and they'll agree to pay you a reasonable amount. Now, sometimes they're just they're bad actors and they just won't they're just not gonna get back to you. They're like, what's your problem? So there is a bill to create a small claims court. I don't know if any of you are aware of that in the copyright office um, or you know that's the tentative place now that would allow people to in a fast track way bring smaller claims. I think there are issues with that bill. I don't know if you've talked about it all today, but um, but it's seen as a problem. I and mean, I, I think that for most businesses and, and individual creators, they pretty you pretty much have a right without um, without any any teeth because it's just too hard, too expensive to enforce. So this is kind of the perfect question to segue into what I hope will wrap things up and conclude things. Um, so as a final question, Who's winning? So this is uh, copyright versus copyleft. Um, are, uh, currently, are right holders winning? Are users winning? Are pirates winning? I'm afraid technology's winning. Who's winning? Or are we properly balanced? I don't see it as winning or losing. I, I'm more you know, I think that right now we're in this period where we've got people on the copyleft and people on, call this a copyright, like on opposite bleachers just screaming at each other and nobody's hearing each other. Nobody's like really listening or trying to figure out what the real issues are. So I, I personally think we're, we're at a time where I think there was, the copyright was too heavy-handed up to I don't know, 15 years ago. And there has been a push. And um, and copyright owners did get away with a lot of nonsense. So there has been sort of a reset, and I think in some ways more of a balance, but I feel like in just a couple areas, the courts have gone too far. I think in interpreting 512 and in fair use, 
But we're, you know, we're in a period of huge technological change, and it's going to take some time to sort all this out. I think once we start seeing a real, real damage to um, to any of the arts, that people might wake up. Well, we already are in, in terms of the, the industries. So I guess I think right if you're talking about sort of the individual battles, I would say tech is kind of winning right now. But in the long term, the total, if you want to call it a war, although I don't like to uh, think that way, I think we will reach a balance because I think it's what's right. But I think the only way we're going to get there is if we listen to each other. And I really actively try to do that. I want to understand, you know, I talk to the library associations, I talk to the tech companies, what are your real concerns? Let's just, let's get beyond the hyperbole, let's get beyond the bullshit and the, you know, these grand statements, what are the real concerns? You know, because from a, a creator's perspective, creators are losing their shirts right now in some ways. And yes, there are other ways to, to make a living, but I'm not sure that's the world that we want. So I'd like to have a rational conversation. So it's a very long-winded way to answer your question. I think a lot of what I see in terms of, you know, battlegrounds and sides, right? You know, it, it, it's tech on the one side and content on the other. Um, and where I think there's some concern is that, the, you know, those those are the the big players having these discussions about how to shape copyright going forward. Users are not part of that, um, for the most part. And I think that is a problem. Um, and yes, the pirates are definitely winning. Uh, pirating is incredibly lucrative. Um, I, yes, I, I would. I would say. I think. I think eventually, um, the copyright will always win, no matter where you start. I think even in t today's day, just way more content creators. So you see, way that you compare comparatively, it's just it outweighs how many types of right assertion suits you will see or right assertion that there are definitely way more content creators. The way you can create content today. Far exceeds, you know, really what anyone could have imagined back when the when the law was put into place. But as I mentioned before, I, I, to me, it's an eventuality. Uh, anyone can create content and certainly go about doing it, regardless of what the copyright law says. They go pirate, regardless of what the copyright law says. Even civil, even with penalties, even with uh, criminal uh, potential, people will pirate because it's lucrative. It's a money maker. As long as you don't get caught. The problem is that when you do get caught, or if someone stole your work, be you an, art, an author, a performer, or what have you, then all of a sudden, like I say, copyright becomes relevant. And it is the only law right now. We can't throw it out, um, at least at the instant moment. That doesn't seem to be the course. But I think ultimately copyright will win out. What form it will take in the future is open to, obviously, the legislature and what we say as practitioners and future practitioners. But I think ultimately, you know, the copyright law is here to stay. I think its underpinnings are well vested in people's, uh, I think it's intrinsically in, in any creator, the right of attribution for their hard work and creativity. So I think in that sense, copyright will, will win out eventually. James, you want to have the last word? Uh, not particularly. Cocktails. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's Okay, so with that, um, please join me in thanking our panelists.